Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, understanding the dormant Commerce Clause. So, Richard, the Supreme Court handed down a ruling last week in this case called Comptroller of the Treasury of Maryland v. Wynn, and it was a decision that turned on a dispute over the dormant Commerce Clause. Now, a lot of our listeners may be familiar with the regular Commerce Clause, giving Congress the power to, amongst other things, regulate interstate commerce. But before we even get to this recent case, just explain for our listeners what on earth people are referring to when they talk about the dormant commerce clause. Okay. Well, the first part of this particular is a mystery is that there is no such clause in the Constitution which bears the title the dormant commerce clause. Uh, this is a confection that comes out of the uh, difficult construction of the commerce clause as it's written. So to back up, the commerce clause states in so many words, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And it is pretty clear from the principle of general preemption that if Congress decides to, ra to regulate some aspect of interstate commerce, this will generally prevail over state laws which are inconsistent with it. This is actually quite a big issue even before the Civil War, uh, so that if Congress, for example, decided to make sure that certain kinds of interstate waterways would be kept free of interference, the state could not put a bridge over a particular river which would block ships from going up and down it. The Commerce Clause was thought to have priority over inconsistent state legislation. Now, the question then arises, suppose it turns out that Congress passes something which is only tangentially related to um, uh, state activities. And this arose in the case called Gibbons and Ogden, in which the issue was whether or not the United States had jurisdiction over a ship that went from Elizabethtown, New Jersey, uh, to New York City. And Justice um, Chief Justice Marshall said, look, I mean, commerce starts at the jury and ends with the, uh, the journey, and so it has – the United States has complete control over it. Well, it also turned out that the journey in New York water was by a steamship, and it turned out also that Mr. Ogden actually owned the patent from Robert Fulton, which governed the use of steamships in New York water. And so the question was whether or not the local patent could block the interstate trip. And Justice Marshall, it's something of a, shall we say, slide of the hand, said, look, this is not a, quote, dormant commerce clause type issue. Uh, there is a general licensing statute that the federal government issues to all boats, and that statute, quote, occupies the field and therefore displaces the state law. Now, this is pretty tricky because you could have a licensing statute for safety, which doesn't interfere with intellectual property rights of franchises given within the state. And so one of the concurring judges, a man named Johnson, I think it was, comes up and says, look, I don't care whether or not the licensing statute covers this or not. Uh, the domain of Congress over interstate commerce is so important that even in the absence of the statute, I will tolerate no interference uh, with the movement of ships in navigation in interstate waters. And so it was from that decision that the quote-unquote dormant commerce clause began. What it means is that even when Congress has not done anything, the courts will essentially police what's going on across the various states. And this in some sense is a huge sort of originalist miscalculation. 
people thought by and large that the way in which you would keep uh, interstate commerce open was for the Congress to intervene to protect it. Historically, it has been the court doing about 99.9% of the work. Congress, which is, of course, to some extent the creature of the states, particularly in the antebellum era, has done very little to promote this. So the competitive nation, um, freed from state barriers, is largely a judicial creation. Okay, so let's talk about the situation at work in this case in Maryland, which brought the case to the Supreme Court. This all has to do with a particular quirk of state tax law in Maryland. Explain what's going on there, Richard. Yeah, well, the tax law situation um, was not the original area for a dormant commerce clause. It was originally regulation, but it became very clear to everybody very early on that taxation and regulation are, in fact, kind of close substitutes for one another. And if you're trying to make sure that you're preserving a competitive union, what you want to make sure is that one state does not essentially distort competitive forces across state lines. And in this particular case, what happens is most states give credit uh, to their own citizens for taxes that they pay on income earned in some other state, the source state, um, when they come back home. So if I'm a Maryland resident and I have income from Virginia, I pay tax in Virginia, say, at 4%. When I come back to Maryland and say the tax rate there is 6%, I only pick up a 2% tax, so I do not have to pay essentially double taxes. Uh, what happens is Maryland has a two-part tax. One is called the state tax. The other is called the county tax. The labels are somewhat misleading, but they granted the credit only for the state tax, not for the county tax, even though the county tax was levied by the state government. And there was a 5-4 split in this opinion as to whether or not this regime of double taxation uh, offended the Dormant Commerce Clause. And Justice Alito writing for the court said, if you can tax foreign income more heavily than you tax domestic income, what you're doing is you're exhibiting a preference through the tax system for local trade rather than for trade in Virginia. And if you want to have a basically a national union, you cannot allow essentially one state to try to tie its own citizens to its own state. You have to let goods and services migrate to the place where they have the highest rate of return. So the dormant commerce clause in his hand and in most the hands of most people who work it is kind of a manifesto manifesto for an Adam Smith free national market in which state boundary lines uh, do not interfere with or upset the flow of commerce or trade or services across state lines. So it's a very free market doctrine. And that, of course, then created four dissenters. Um, very briefly, uh, Elena Kagan, writing a pretty strong opinion, says, look, I just don't think that this fine point of tax is enough of a disruption to interstate commerce to worry about. And then Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas in different ways saying, I don't believe in the dormant commerce clause at all. It's a fiction, a judicial fraud. And so Justice Scalia says, I'll only extend it to cases of explicit discrimination. And Justice Thomas, Thomas says, I don't even believe in it at all. So let's explore those ideological fissures a little bit, Richard, because when you reference this principle the way you just did, uh, invoking Adam Smith, and then somebody hears that it's a 5-4 decision, you would assume that you were probably talking about the five Republican appointees on the court. But Justice Alito wrote this opinion with Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Kennedy, Breyer, and Sotomayor in the majority with him, and then as you mentioned, Scalia, Thomas, Ginsburg, and Kagan dissenting. How – I mean how on earth do you get a split like that? What does that tell us about the divisions here on this area of constitutional law? Well, it tells you a lot about constitutional interpretation and relatively little about markets. The Scalia position has nothing to do with the desirability 
of um, a free trade union in the United States, ditto with respect to Thomas. Both of them are pretty strong originalists, and they go back to the original sin that was created in Gibbons and Ogden and say, you know, I looked at this document long and hard, and there's no dormant commerce clause at all. If Congress legislates, then it controls. If it doesn't regulate, the states are free to do what they want. And so one of them wants to just get rid of it, and the other wants to confine it to a very, very narrow area. Uh, But on the other side, there's always been a kind of a messianic view of what the Constitution is about. It's designed to forge this great national union and so forth, and forces that are likely to rip it apart are essentially viewed with great deal of hostility. That was surely the position of Joseph Story, even more so important on these issues perhaps than Chief Justice Marshall. They both saw this great vision. In Gibbons and Ogden, it was actually something of a stretch to say that navigation in state waters, in fact, is subject to federal regulation. At the time, back in 1824, there was a lot of state authority which said the most the federal government could do was to regulate uh, goods or services as they cross state lines. Indeed, it wasn't even clear that the federal government had power to regulate the shipment of passengers across lines, the theory being that commerce only applied to the shipment of goods. And so, you know, you see these broadened notions coming out, and Justice Scalia essentially is not a consequentialist. He's not a social welfare theorist. He's very much a textualist in the Henry Hart tradition. He came out of Harvard in the 1950s, graduated in 1960, and he just doesn't cotton to this stuff. Uh, Justice Alito, I think, is more in the other tradition saying, look at what God hath wrought. And in fact, if we allow the union to go forward in a fashion in which states can balkanize all sorts of activities by favoring themselves, the incidence of reprisals, in fact, will be so great that the nation will come apart. And, you know, the leading opponent, proponent to that position, again, is are two people. One is Justice Cardoza, who was a liberal when he got on the Supreme Court, voted with all the New Deal reforms until his death in 1938. And then Robert Jackson, the very man who wrote Wicked and Filburn, the, you know, the case terrible of all conservative <laughs> constitutional law theorists, saying, oh my God, you have the power under the Commerce Clause to regulate the consumption of wheat on farms. How can you dare say that? He writes in 1949 in a case called Hood and Demand, an extremely pro-competitive position. Uh, That is, what happens is the liberals see the dangers of balkanization and they take very strong steps to stop it. But the liberals, on the other hand, don't see the dangers of national cartelization and so what they do is they facilitate it. And that is, by the way, the position which actually holds even today in the European Union. Free trade across boundary lines, but if the uh, central powers in Brussels want to regulate it very, very strongly there, um, they can do so. So it's not as though our position is improbable. What's interesting about it is how it has managed to emerge in both Europe on the one hand and in the United States on the other hand, where there's absolutely no explanation as to why it should happen in that particular fashion. It's really a kind of a, a, an interesting quirk of constitutional um, history um, at its best. So final question. You mentioned Wickard v. Filburn there. We've talked in this episode and in many before about the excesses that you think the Supreme Court has gone to with its interpretation of the Commerce Clause, where the federal government's allowed to intervene. What do you say to the sort of glib but commonplace rejoinder that you tend to get on the left, which is, you know, come on, Richard, the New Deal wasn't the end of the world. It's been 75 years. There's no going back. And you know what? 
America seems to have done just fine in that time. How would you respond to that? Well, that's a much grander question than we comes out of the Dormant Commerce Clause. Well, I would say as following, America has done as well as pretty much any other nation in the world, but they're all subject to the same kind of a political pressures of faction that takes place when there's not a strong institutional protection of property rights. One of the reasons I would say why it has done as well as it has done is because the Dormant Commerce Clause has stopped a lot of the state mischief which would otherwise have taken place. And then if you try to look at what the serious difficulties and dislocations are in the United States, um, it essentially comes from national cartelization as the greatest of our perils. Um, there are other things. And what does this national power do? Well, first of all, what it does is it creates very strong centralization and control over labor markets, um, if not by the federal government, then through the states, all of which is authorized by federal law. It has wrecked agricultural markets to the extent that it has allowed cartels to take place. We've been blessed because technical superiority in agriculture has reduced the force of the monopoly, but there's still huge distortions. Think of the ethanol market as being a classic illustration of how national policy has gone astray. Um, it also turns out that if you start looking at the system, the tax code is a nightmare uh, because the New Deal propensity for progressive taxations and specialized taxes has created real bottlenecks and so forth. Uh, so what I would say is we've done fine, quote unquote, relative to a rather bow baseline. But most of these things I think you can identify as serious public issues and serious public evils, which you could reverse without wrecking the fabric of the nation either. And, you know, it is worth noting that the level of progress seems to go down as the level of progressive rule starts to move up. Uh, the New Deal probably prolonged the depression between 1929, say, and 1940, the beginning of the war, by several years. And in thinking about this, remember Herbert Hoover as president was a progressive. He was the guy who raised tariffs. He was the guy who put um, a high progressive income tax place in place. He was the guy who essentially introduced the Davis-Bacon wage on prevailing wages. So the New Deal and Hoover are much closer together than, say, Harding on the one hand and Coolidge on the other hand, who had a rather different market. Uh, so I would say, in effect, if you look at the recent years, the call for equality is greater now than it's ever been nationally and internationally. And median income, the more suggestive measure on this point, has actually gone down uh, because of the way in which this combination of taxation and regulation and transfer payments has stilled productive labor. And I don't think it's too late for people to start to change this. Um, it's quite clear it won't all happen in a day. But when it comes to sort of new enthusiasms like the Obamacare legislation and so forth, the Supreme Court missed a serious effort to strike down something, which I think in the end will prove itself to be non-sustainable. That is, you're trying to run one of these programs with re-enrollment year after year after year, and as the information on rates comes in, it's quite clear that the program will either be postponed or altered or will crash. And, you know, why do you want to run these kinds of risks is something for which I don't think we have a clear answer. So my basic view about this is if Justice Scalia is a true originalist, direct your fire. Uh, to the affirmative grant of commerce power rather than to the Dorman Clause and the same thing to Justice Thomas. It is ironic that their wrath is directed to the, as it were, deviations from the original plan which it proved healthy. I would rather it be directed towards the other doctrines and it's quite clear since 1937 uh, that the willingness to roll back the affirmative power of Congress, although it hiccups here and there, has basically been a complete and total bust. And that is a great loss to our nation. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, 
by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.